don't know that I have ever told you about one of the most influential people in my life at Baylor University. His name was Buzz. Buzz was just a guy that was winsome. There was gentleness about him. He had a sense of peace about him. He was a guy who was confident, gentle, respectful in any way around him. Buzz just caused me to look at him and think, I want to be like Buzz. First Peter is exactly the same kind of a book. The people that, that Peter is talking to who happen to be in Turkey they were having difficult times. They were living in, in a highly stressful situation. And yet there was something about them that drew people to them. And they wanted to find out, what is the hope that you have? You should not be living with such uh, kindness and gentleness and a winsomeness about you. What is it in you that is so different? And I want to know about that. That is why we're going through the book of First Peter. Today I want to talk about the context of where they were. Pick up where we left off last week. What was different about them? and the result of their putting their hope in Jesus. So take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Peter toward the end of your New Testament. I'll give you a a moment to find that. And then we will uh, look at verses 1 through 3 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces. And then he names some provinces. Basically, it's modern-day Turkey. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and His Spirit has made you holy or mature or set apart. As a result, you have obeyed Him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by His great mercy that we've been born again because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. Peter refers to them as aliens, as exiles, as foreigners, as temporary residents. In other words, they were living in a land that's not their own. If you, if you want to look at maybe the first exiles, it would be Adam and Eve. They were living in the perfect environment, what God wanted for them. They chose to try to make life work apart from God, and they were removed, and they lived as exiles. And all through the Old Testament, you find the Israelites in and out of captivity, in and out of exile, but God had a plan for them. So when he refers to them, to those uh, as foreigners, as temporary uh, residents, living lands not their own, that is a recurring theme, and it actually applies to you and me. Let me just run a couple verses by you in addition to what we've already read. 1 Peter 2.11, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners... Hebrews 13.14, for this world is not our permanent home... Philippians 3.20, but we are citizens of heaven. We are eagerly waiting for him to come. The bottom line of what we need to see from this is we must learn how to live in close proximity to our culture, yet hold to the values of another. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. That we are to live in close proximity to our culture instead of pulling up the drawbridge or attacking the culture. We're called to learn how to live in close proximity to our culture yet while we're holding on to the views and the values of another. In other words, how do we live for, the, for God's kingdom in a culture that wants the benefits of the kingdom but they don't want the leadership of the king? And so we're at, this, at, at odds because we're living according to different values. 
So Peter's going to call, he's going to have a call for us to work for the good of society where God is at work among them. Here's what it looked like in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29.7. They're in exile at this time. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So he's saying instead of lamenting about the world, how lost the world is and living in an anti-way anti, anti towards our biblical values, antithetical uh, way of, of, our, of how we live as believers in Christ, instead of acknowledging how different we are, what would it look like for us to begin to invest in and bless and encourage and serve and care for? You obviously have seen this. We always see this hashtag blessed. And this is almost the opposite of that. Not just saying, or am I blessed? We certainly are. But we want to turn that word bless into a verb. How can we bless? How can we bring value? How can we care for? How can we come alongside a world whose values are different than ours and come alongside them instead of lamenting how different they are, begin to live our lives in such a way, be a buzz, all right? That we would be like Buzz, my friend, that lives in such a winsome, convicting, encouraging uh, way that we want to be around him and say, I want to be like them. This is what God has called us to do in Genesis 12. God blessed Abraham. We know that. But then he sent him to a land that was not his own, into a land that he didn't even know where he was going. And he said, I want you to bless those who are around you. So the challenge for me is how do we, what does it look like if we spend and devoted a large amount of our prayer time asking God to show me, show us how he wants to use us to bless, to serve, to notice the people we meet. What kind of an impact would we have? We may not change the narrative about our faith on a national level, but every person we meet is a chance to change it on a personal one. Can you imagine if just the people at New Cub began to, to think through, who do, who's God going to put in my pathway today? Typically, on, uh, every day before I get started, I look over my calendar to see who is on my list of who I'm going to be in contact with. And I begin to pray and say, God, would you help me to be a breath of fresh air? Would you help me to be, have the kind of uh, conversation with them that makes a difference so that they are glad they were around me? that they would ask me to speak more, longer, and longer. Amen. By the way, we have a new clock. I got outvoted. It was 7 to 1. <laughs> Those of you online, I'm sorry, but there's a big flashing red sign saying, land the plane, land the plane. So the context, here we go, back to, back to business. So the context is they're living as exiles. We know that. They are separate. They don't belong there. And we're going to find out next week, not only were they living in a land that did not belong to them, and God calls them to live winsome lives, caring lives, lives that draw people to them, but they also were in the midst of persecution and suffering. We're going to talk about the kind of a theology of suffering. Where is God when suffering is going on? So that is the context of this. And look at verse 3. This is a game-changing verse. Here they are. They're in exile. They're not where they want to be. They're in midst of persecution and midst of, of suffering. And they say, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All praise to God. 
This is their outlook. They're being like buzz. They're saying life is, is to be uh, appreciated. It is by his great mercy that we've been born again, so we've been blessed because Jesus was raised from the dead. Now look at this. Now we live with great expectation, not dread, not fear, not anger, not angst. We live with great expectation with hope. In other words, they are saying he is worthy of our praise. He is totally worthy of all our praise and all of our commitment. And so what we find in 1 Peter, such hope in hardship, again, hope in the midst of being exiles where they don't want to be. And you may feel like you're not where you want to be. And ultimately, this is not our home. We need to quit trying to make this our permanent home. We've been put exactly where God wants us, to be an influencer, to point people to Jesus, to live lives with a different value system, but to live among people so they can see how we live and they're drawn to Jesus Christ. Peter expected that their evident hope in the middle of suffering would be the catalyst for people to inquire about their hope. 1 Peter 3.15 And if someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. I heard it put this way, Elliot Clark. Hope doesn't merely open our mouths with the gospel. Visible hope can also open others' hearts to Christ. It's about what God does in and through us. And he builds this hope within us, even in the midst of exile, even in the midst of suffering, that they would be able to come say, all praise to God, our Lord Jesus Christ, because he alone is worthy. He is worthy. So Peter, all the way through, and as we work our way through, we're going to see that he offers a model, not just for surviving and just praying that we can get through this, but actually living a compelling life. So just, I realize our situation is a little different than in, in, the, in the first century, but there are some commonalities. But here, let me just talk about our particular culture before I ask Brent uh, to step in here. Cultural commentator Aaron Wren talks about a positive, neutral, and negative world that we have moved into with people's view toward Christianity. He talks about the positive, which was before 1994. Christianity was viewed positively by society. We had huge influence and impact. The church was respected and appreciated, and Christianity was the norm. Then we moved into a neutral world, 1994 to 2014, where Christianity was seen as socially neutral. We were kind of put on the side. We were told, you can follow Jesus all you want, but just don't force that on others. And then we've moved into a negative world, which is 2014 and up to to current time, where we are now being seen as a socially negative. We are seen as undermining the social good. And this highly... Uh, This negative world is highly proactive and actively hostile towards us, and yet we're not to draw up the, the bridge. Peter, they were living in that kind of environment as well, and they, yet he calls for them to be a, a city on a hill, so to speak, that, they, that people would see them and see them stand out and that they are different. So one of the essential lessons of First Peter is that suffering and social exclusion is actually the most normal thing in the world. Let me remind you of 1 Peter 4.12. Dear friends, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. 
So the tension that we live with is that we're living with a vertical worldview, a biblical worldview, a uh, kingdom worldview, so to speak, while most everyone around us is living with a horizontal worldview. I've asked Brent, who's done quite a bit of study on the kingdom viewpoint and kingdom mindset, I've asked him to come and talk about that. Awesome. Thanks, Tim. So, yeah, so we're going to talk about what it looks like to live with the kingdom mindset throughout the rest of First Peter here. Uh, I find it helpful just to back up for a moment and ask ourselves, what exactly is the kingdom of God? Uh, the kingdom of God is all over the New Testament. In fact, uh, in his first public appearance, when Jesus proclaims good news, he mentions the kingdom of God. Uh, in Mark 1:14, we read, After John, the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So at least part of the good news that Jesus had for the people of his day was that the kingdom of God had come near. And many of the parables or figurative stories that Jesus told during his ministry were designed to help us understand what the kingdom of God is like. So the kingdom of God was very much a part of Jesus' thinking. Uh, in First Peter, the kingdom of God is presented as our true home, like Tim was talking about a moment ago. Uh, so when we think of our situation compared to those of the original readers, uh, they were actual literal exiles in the sense that they were not living in the land of their birth. Uh, and that's something that we today don't, most of us at least, who are listening this morning, don't share that experience with them. But we do share uh, the spiritual experience of being exiles or pilgrims. Uh, which is something that happens in this book. Peter overlays both the literal uh, image of being an exile or a pilgrim and sort of the figurative or spiritual uh, picture of doing that. And we share that that spiritual sense of exile uh, and pilgrimage with them uh, because as followers of Jesus, uh, this world is not our true home. Uh, This land, the state, the city, wherever it is that we're born or come from, that is not ultimately our true home. Uh, Our truest home is with God in his kingdom. Uh, This morning, real quick, I want to look at a couple characteristics of the kingdom of God just to give us a sense of what does that even mean. Uh, And we won't unpack all of this this morning, but as we move through 1 Peter over the next few weeks, uh, these are things that will get fleshed out. So first, uh, part of the kingdom of God I want to look at is that the kingdom of God is not of this world. Uh, During his trial, the night before he was executed, Jesus was questioned by the Roman official Pontius Pilate. Uh, And during their conversation, we read this in John 18. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? And then here we have it. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. One of the main mistakes that uh, Jesus' earliest followers made was assuming uh, that Jesus was going to be an earthly king. Their hope was that he was going to be the new king of Israel that would deliver them from Roman oppression. But often throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus taking time to remind them that that is not his project. That's not what he was sent for. Uh, Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual one that can manifest itself in this world at any time 
in any place. It's not limited to uh, a location or national boundaries. His kingdom uh, is not of this world. So that's the first element. Uh, The second element, and this one might seem obvious, but I feel like because of our culture, we need to point this out. Uh, Because the kingdom of God is a kingdom, it has a king, okay? And this is one of those times where uh, the culture that the Bible, of the people that the Bible was written to, is so different from ours that it's helpful for us to stop and acknowledge that. Uh, As Americans, we don't have a king, right? We we don't live under a kingship. And so uh, if we're going to think about heaven being, or the kingdom of God being our true home and following Jesus in his kingdom, uh, then as Americans, we're going to probably have to embrace some ideas that are uh, at least foreign, if not uncomfortable to us. Uh, And here's a couple of them. Uh, In a kingdom, the king makes the rules, uh, and that's important for us. Uh, I'm going to back up for just a second, because uh, the, the important piece here is that the, the king in the kingdom of God is Jesus, right? Uh, he's the king of the Jews. <clears throat> in his uh, interaction with, with Pilate, uh, on the night that he died, Luke records something uh, in addition to what we read in John. Uh, Luke 23, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, you have said it. Uh, Pilate turned to the leading priests uh, in the crowd and said, I find nothing wrong with this man. So a couple things to note here. First, uh, Pilate assumes that Jesus' answer is an affirmative, that he is admitting that, yes, he is a king. Uh, And in fact, at his execution, Pilate puts a plaque over Jesus' head that says, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. So whether he liked Jesus' claim or not, he agreed with Jesus' claim that he was a king. Uh, Secondly, that the claim here that's being made is that Jesus was king of the Jews. And this is important because the Jews are a people. They're not a place. Okay. Uh, The Jews throughout the Bible are seen as the people of God. Uh, And yet all throughout the gospels, we see Jesus inviting non-Jews to follow him as well. So I think it's safe to say uh, that Jesus is the king of the people of God or in our time, Uh, the king of all who would follow Jesus. Uh, So like I mentioned a moment ago, in a kingdom, the king gets to make the rules. And uh, that's not necessarily something that uh, Americans are used to, having somebody else make the rules for us. Um, It's a problem if the person making the rules is not good. But the Bible is clear over and over, even as Tim mentioned this morning, that Jesus is always and only good and he's out for our best. And so because of that, I think it's worth us giving serious consideration to allowing him to be king and to set the rules. Um, Kings also ask for our allegiance. They ask for us to trust them before anyone or anyone, anything else. Uh, That's where our loyalty should lie. And again, if the person that we're offering our loyalty or allegiance to is not good, then that's probably an unwise decision to make. But if Jesus really is good, like the scriptures say that he is, then I think we need to at least consider offering our loyalty to him before anyone or anything else. And these are ideas, again, that because of our culture, uh, we don't usually think in those terms. But as we think about living in the kingdom, uh, those are things that we're going to have to think through uh, and embrace. So, uh, 
the kingdom of God is not of this world, and Jesus is its king. Uh, lastly, the kingdom of God has ambassadors. Uh, as you know, an ambassador is someone who's sent from their home country to live in another land, uh, and their job is to represent the interests and the values of their sending country to the one where they are currently living. Uh, the ambassador doesn't live in his homeland, but he promotes, again, the values and interests of the place where he came from. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul tells us that followers of Jesus are to be the ambassadors of the kingdom of God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.20, we read, We, therefore, are Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So, in the same way, the earthly ambassadors represent the interests and values of the home country that they come from. Followers of Jesus are to represent the values and interests of the kingdom of God in, the, in this fallen world, wherever it is that we find ourselves. Uh, at times, our representing the kingdom will be through words, which is like the example that Paul gave in 2 Corinthians 5. But often, as I think is the case that Peter is going to make, uh, the, the representing of our homeland, the kingdom of God, to the rest of the world will be through the kind of lives that we live. And that's what I think we're going to unpack here in the next few weeks as we look at how Peter calls people to live uh, in a hard situation. So, uh, real quick to wrap up, with all that said, uh, let me offer a quick definition of the kingdom of God, just so uh, as we talk about this world not being our true home, at least you have something in your heads that you can sort of latch onto. Uh, the kingdom of God is anywhere that God's character, values, and ways are expressed in a community of people. So let me say it again. The kingdom of God is anywhere that the character, values, in God uh, and uh, ways of God are expressed in a community of people. Uh, maybe a different way to say that is uh, the kingdom of God is anywhere that it's obvious that Jesus is king of the people in that community because of how they live. Uh, now, ideally, the primary expression of the kingdom of God is, is the local church and I think that's totally the case. But it's also possible for the kingdom of God to be expressed in smaller communities of those who follow, follow Jesus. Uh, it can be in a workplace. It can be in a school. It can be in a neighborhood. Wherever a group of people are following Jesus and allowing him to be king of their lives can be an expression of the kingdom of God. And so this idea of uh, the kingdom of God as being our true home as followers of Jesus is going to be really important as Peter calls us to live lives that often are going to seem odd or at odds with the values uh, and the ways of the place that we find ourselves in here today. So I'm going to turn it back over to you. Thank you, Brent. So the bottom line for us is we must determine who is worthy of our devotion, who is worthy of our praise. That's the difference between horizontal and vertical. Horizontal says, I'll do my own thing. Vertical says it's, it's all to Christ. You'll remember verse 3, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He made the, the folks at, in, in the, that he was talking to made a determination that Jesus is worthy of all their praise. And because of that, they now live with great expectation. So here's the, que- or here's the statement. Every follower of Jesus must ask himself what it means to live a kingdom life in today's 
negative world. I've heard it put this way, you can impress at a distance, but you can only impact up close. You can impress at a distance, but only impact up close. And what we're going to see is that even in the midst of life not being perfect, even in times of difficulty and even in times of being where you may not want to be, God has called us not to impress but to impact and that we would live a life that says he is worthy. He alone is worthy. I close with the challenge once again from last week that I want to ask you to embrace this life statement for you for the for next foreseeable future. I don't want average. I don't want the easiest path. I want to know God intimately and deeply. I want my life to defy human explanation. That is what happened with those, with those followers of Jesus. Their life defied human explanation because they were filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit and they made a determined saying, he is worthy, he alone is worthy. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that all of us, and I pray that it would begin with me, that if there's any area of my life where you're not the king and I'm not following your leadership, God, would you bring that area to my mind's eye? I want to live a life that is inexplicable. Not because of anything I have or have done, but because of what you've done. Because you alone deserve all the, all the worship and all the praise. You alone are worthy of my devotion. And I pray that we'd be a church that lives that way. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.